You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Welcome back to episode 37 of Arsenal Pass. I'm Brendan Patrick, joined always by calling champion Hayden Dale. Hayden, how are you doing? Yeah, Brendan, all good, all good. How are you? Good, good, good. About to go on <laughs> vacation, actually. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking on some common mistakes in gameplay that you need to avoid to be successful in Flesh and Blood. We're going to go into some things that might not be so obvious, some things that are pretty obvious, and then some mistakes that even Hayden and I make to this day. But first off, Hayden, let's talk about your week in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, week in Flesh and Blood's been pretty pretty quiet, actually. Uh, obviously, it's holiday week, so you know a few things to get done. Uh, finishing up work myself for the week, uh, which has been it's always a little bit busier, I think, as you, you, know, you prepare to take a couple of weeks off. So getting that all sorted out uh bits of you know christmas shopping things like that and then yeah i haven't really no no armories this week um i think managed to get in one last week a, a cc armory uh played a bit of a bit of reiner um as i've been playing in most armories recently actually which i've been enjoying and yeah what else have we i mean that's kind of it just a bit of testing um and yeah, I mean, otherwise, just getting ready for, like you said, Brendan, vacation. Right? I know you're going away. I'm going to be doing a, a mm. bit of a staycation for my two weeks. Yeah, for sure. You know what? This is actually a funny vacation for me because I'm going to Durango, which is in Colorado. You go to tell people where that is. <laughs> yes, but last time I was in Durango was actually when I first met, not first met Hayden, but I kind of actually met Hayden and we decided to launch Arsenal Pass. That was in Durango. It was in spring. Oh. Full circle. A little bit earlier this time, but yeah, full circle. Eh? Um, but yeah, it's gonna be good. Got a nice fourteen-hour drive tomorrow. My weekend flushing blood been pretty chill, mostly because I've been super busy. Been traveling. My brother graduated from college last weekend, so we had to go up, which uh, unfortunately I didn't even I didn't even know about before this weekend. So <laughs> got that dropped on me on Friday, and I was a little flustered. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to kind of be up in Colorado, just living in the woods for about three weeks, just. You know, getting in touch with nature. I'm bringing my dog. My parents are actually going up too. Um, they're bringing their dogs too. So it's going to be a, a nice little, nice experience. Bit of a bit of a getaway. And you, you mountain bike, right? So you're going to take the bike up and get in a few trails. This, this snowy. Oh yeah, yeah of I course. Would. I'm thinking yeah. it's, I'm thinking it's because <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, currently, yeah. you know, 80, Southern hemisphere. Yeah. It's 80 degrees out. If you're Fahrenheit, you know, about 20, 26, 27 or so here. Yeah. I don't know. My, that conversion is probably bad, but you know, it's it's warm here. I forget that it's uh, it's currently probably snowing in the mountains of Colorado. <laughs> yep, definitely. Well, let's talk about the news, Hayden. Yeah, I mean, we had a we had a pretty big news week last week on the pod, and lots of stuff happening. A little bit quieter this week as we kind of wrap up the year. Uh, just two weeks left. But one thing we did get is we got our first Everfest Everfest preview card. Uh, you know, the first we've seen the first cards from Everfest. We've seen a attack action card. And we've also seen a, a new hero, a young hero, and that's a guardian hero by the name of Velda Brightax. Um, if you've ever seen the, you know, the art on Cranial Crush, that's uh, that's yeah. Velda. Yeah. So we now have her as a, a young hero. Um, I'm, you know, I'm pretty confident by that naming metric that she's, you know, she's a young hero only, right? She starts with 21 life, so um, does does look like it. And you know, aside from that, uh, do we just have one guardian hero, Brendan, or do we have two guardian heroes? We have two guardian here. What? <laughs> well, so yeah, so I mean, the the name on uh, the this this playmat. They showed the playmat right in Bravo, and they give it a name. And so, is that the name of the playmat, or is that a little signal that we're getting a new Bravo hero? That'd be wild. Um, this Valda thing is really interesting. I mean, maybe this. So, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. You know, it's funny because, like, when, when they give us, like, the first spoiler, the first two, there's, like, so much to talk about. And then when they start giving them to us to every day, we, like, focus a lot yeah. less. But, uh, yeah, what is, like, 21 life, right? So yeah. we're assuming young only. So we're going to go through the most likely going through the whole kind of Blitz heroes um, like we did in, in Crucible, the addition of all the new Blitz heroes. I would like to see an addition of adult heroes. Like, I think that would be really cool. Um, but, Ooh. you know, maybe it's just not the way the game is designed. Uh, but Valda, really cool. All about not drawing cards, much like much like Cranial Crush. Do you have the um, the text? Of I do. Valda so 
Yeah, so Valdos, as you say, it's a 4 Intellect Terror, 21 uh, starting health. It says whenever an opponent draws a card during an action phase, create a Seismic Surge token for each card they, uh, card drawn this way. So, you know, if they are in their action phase and they play an Art of War, you're going to get two Seismic Surges when they banish and draw two cards. And then at the start of your turn, if you control three or more Seismic Surge tokens, uh, cards you own with Crush can dominate this turn. So, I, very specific here, I believe, right? It feels like we're going to see some some stuff in Everfest that's really promoted around I guess drawing cards, which is, you know, is this kind of Alice is saying, hey, look, what's going to happen in Neverfest? Um, it's an interesting one Evolution, because it feels, right? yeah, it feels very We specific. don't have a lot of card draw. We don't have a lot of card draw in Flesh and Blood, mostly because it's freaking ridiculously powerful. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, like if uh, the best way to kind of talk about, like, illustrate this is if you ever played Data Doll, like, what's it like to have three cards every turn or three cards consistently over four? Now, imagine if you're able to consistently draw cards. Um, and Val is punishing people that are drawing like three cards. So it it's a crazy ability, but um, I hope we get a lot of card draw. It well, could be really interesting. Yeah, so three cards is, is quite a lot of cards as well. It's not like, you know, you've got Art of War, you've got Tom of Fiendale, Tom of Aethon. You've got these cards that do draw you cards, right? Um, cards that draw you stuff in your, you know, you've got Showtime and Bravo, for instance. But what card, uh, you know, you you also do have a generic in the form of Cashin from Crucible. Are we, are we going to see... Uh, some coins and, and cash and come come about on the set. Smart man. Oh man, that that really sounds like it could be it. All right, but there's another card that was released, Hayden, and I think it's probably one of my favorite cards I've ever seen because it's allowing us to play with my favorite card I've ever seen, which is Crazy Brew. <laughs> I heard that's uh, Sasha Markovich's favorite card, actually. The old Crazy Brew. Um, yeah, we've got we've got Life of the Party, which is the first you know uh, non-hero card we also see from Everfest. It is a generic attack action. Uh, at red, it attacks for four, defends for two, and it costs two. And it says you may discard a, you may discard or destroy a card you control named Crazy Brew rather than pay life for the party's uh, resource cost. If you do, choose all modes. Otherwise, just choose one of these modes at random. And so Life of the Party has uh, three modes. You get to choose either one or you get to choose three if you use the Crazy Brew sort of alternative casting cost. Uh, life of the Party gains when this hits, gain two life. Life of the Party gains plus to attack and life of the party gains go again so you know you blow up your crazy brew you come with life of the party for free it has go again for six and if it hits gains you two life so yeah interesting interesting card i don't know how powerful that is uh with crazy brew it means you have to put crazy brew in your deck but it's more than anything it's an awesome card and the the art is is, is pretty sweet and you've got someone uh i, I don't know is that it looks like a tunic in the fiendal spring tunic in there maybe it's not i don't know <laughs> Or it's absolutely busted and it's just going to break them out. No, it's great. I love it. It's fun. It's going to be cool. I love that I'm going to have a reason to play my uh, alternate art Crazy Breeze. Oh, well, the extended like, arts, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've just been sitting in my binder. <laughs> Bring them out. So, no, I mean, some some pretty cool first cards we see. I think generally, at least when they sort of show the first kind of preview cards of a set, they're kind of signaling something either marquee or something that they're really proud of with the set or something that they want to let players know it is coming right they don't just start with some random card that means nothing uh so i think life of the party really embodies what we're going to see with everfest we knew it was going to be you know obviously it's the festival of, of aria and uh the pictures we saw you know big tents and a carnival kind of theme style obviously the, the packaging is that as well so to see life of the party it's uh i think it, it clearly is a signal by lss of what to expect with everfest and and then with valda you know she's uh her art is literally her ending a, a bar fight, right? With the guy from Stonewall Confidence polishing his glass in the background. <laughs> it's hilarious, man. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm really, uh, I mean, we've said it a million times and I'll say it a million more. Uh, supplemental sets are really just kind of the, the best thing in flesh and blood. <laughs> yeah. And the the last thing I did want to just touch back on is this. this so the armory kit was released. Uh, they've said, you know, there's you get rainbow foil, life of the parties for this next month's rainbow kit. There's four coal foil, uh, Velda bright axes available in those armory kits. And then there's two people's champion um, playmats. Uh, and they've put in, you know, it's called Bravo, comma, star of the show. And that's why I think a few people have peaked to, hold up, is that the name of the mat? Or is that the character on the mat? Um, are we going to be seeing our first you know, I guess, iteration of a hero. Are we going to see Bravo at Everfest as a new hero card? Uh, you know, maybe talented, potentially, named Bravo, star of the show. So this is just a, you know, it's a bit of a speculation, but it's an interesting one. No, honestly, I could see it. That is, um, now that I think about it, I'm like, dang. And uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of worried too, because we got, we got a Runeblade's time of the sun, but it sounds like a Guardian. Guardian's going to have its time where we just have a, a million Guardians printed in a row. <laughs> 
it's interesting so it's it's i i don't know if it fits with the design philosophy of like the system lss have described with you know like retirement and living legend so how would it work if you basically get the same you know because this bravo could play crippling crush for instance right because it's the same uh, it's a different hero but it's it's a bravo hero so it could play bravo specializations if that was the case it'd be a really interesting path to go down uh, i don't know if that's actually what we're seeing here but i feel like lss wouldn't just show this for no reason and i don't know if um that hero convention on playmats has been used in the past I actually i was meant to have a look at it and i didn't so if anyone in the comments wants to drop down have we ever seen playmats before where they feature a hero uh, and they've used a different you know a different naming convention like that they've given a name to the the playmat i'd be interested to know um because there's definitely a few things it could be but you know it's nice to to think that maybe we're gonna get something really really cool like a uh you know a hero in a period of time um that's uh, an iteration on, on the current the current hero yeah so hear me out i actually think that makes the most sense um going forward it's like because then you wouldn't have to retire these cards you know like the crippling crushes and the spinal crushes mm -hmm. but you could tweak um the hero text actually change the the play pattern of the class or the hero significantly right it means essentially just a new hero but you get to keep all the specializations it actually makes a lot of sense i think moving forward yeah, it's interesting that we might get it this early i mean bravo's not exactly close to living legend um but yeah i mean it's it's maybe you know we're just getting down a rabbit hole here but i think it's super interesting the the idea of these heroes you know these welcome to wraith and arcane rising heroes being untalented right or non-talent heroes puts them at like a bit of a disadvantage right in terms of some some degree and and there's been talk and i know i've got you know people in the community who see this to me as well you know they they are a step back they they get a bit of you know less ability to maybe compete because they don't have xyz they're the heroes that came with the foundation of the game to teach the game and once we got into you know basically fab 1.0 with monarch these heroes you know maybe they don't stack up as much but what if these heroes that were in you know fab you know 0.0 .0 or whatever uh now elevate and come through as these periods of different heroes you know they've uh, bravo showstopper evolves into Bravo Star Show. Whatever uh, it might be. Anyway. I, I need to preface this by saying this is completely organic, but I'm going to put on the tinfoil hat in classic fashion. <laughs> Here we go. And if you look at so look at the young heroes in Welcome to Wraith. Katsu, yep. the Wanderer, what is he what is his young hero called? Just just Katsu. It's called Katsu. So what is the new Bravo called? It's just called Bravo. So it's own this new Bravo is only an adult hero. I mean it could also be a young hero. They just add a little addendum after his name. But mm. what if it's just an adult hero for classic constructed? It's not a young hero. I don't know why they wouldn't add a young hero too, but it's a possibility because if you look at the naming convention, it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't convert. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the period in their life, right? So Bravo Showstopper is a period in Bravo's life potentially, whereas, you know, maybe Bravo Star of the Show is a, is a different time in his life. It's, and young Bravo is, is young Bravo. That's when he's young. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see it. But then I have always questioned this. It's like, okay, you have someone like a, a Velda Brightax, who's a, a young hero, does she does she ever become an adult hero? Like because she has a naming so. convention. I of, think there's a possibility, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. She has a weird naming convention, right? Um, maybe they don't adhere too hard to this like naming convention, but I mean that's very un LSS. They seem to do everything on an equation basis. But um, I think you know, I don't know. I think I just I really want to see new adult <laughs> heroes. I'm just I'm looking for a way I'm, to find. Yeah, it. I know. I'm trying to. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm feeding you now. I mean, it could also be a young hero, right? So it could be probably yeah, star of the show. It could be the naming convention can still be used for young hero. Anyway, that ended up being a lot longer than I thought, but really interesting conversation. I'm, I'm excited to see once we get to Everfest previews at the end of next month, what we're, uh, what we're going to get. We obviously just kind of on that note, actually, I mean, obviously, but on that note, we have a, a preview card, uh, which we're going to be sharing with everyone, which we're super excited about. And we also, we're going to get the chance to uh, actually crack a pack. Yeah. Which is, which is super cool. So I think we get to do that a couple of days before release. Our card is, card is on like the 28th or 29th of january we'll uh, we'll make sure we let you know what what day that is and what day we're going to put it up and, and where we're going to put it up but yeah i'm i just can't wait to see what's in everfest so i want to answer the burning question that i know all of our listeners have right now so if if arsenal pass is getting a spoiler and they're getting a pack who gets to open the pack well actually they're splitting it in half straight down the middle and me and hayden will both be opening the pack no actually i think it might be going to me because I responded to Chris's email thinking it was for the Discord, and I, I didn't see your CC because I was on my phone, and I think I put my address in there. Oh, uh, well, logistics is fine. We'll cut it in half, and we'll send it out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anyway. All right, so that was, some, that was great news. Do you have some bad news for us, too? 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not it's not good news. Uh, the the calling Utrecht has been cancelled, unfortunately. That was announcement made in this past week. Uh, we're recording a little bit earlier this week, so forgive us just to date stamp this, just in case anyone's wondering. Uh, because you know the end of year brendan's going on vacation we are recording uh, my time it's tuesday morning the 21st brendan it's monday the 20th afternoon for you but this this uh, news was shared end of last week or mid last week and yeah i mean the the current situation in parts of europe has led to unfortunately the, the calling being cancelled in utrecht which means uh, no first european calling in january and no you know calling between now and everfest so just the just the two nationals that are currently slated uh, look like they're going to go ahead so yeah, a bit unfortunate, and we'll just, I guess, have to wait and see what happens with the calling season as we head February, March, April, past Everfest, past the progress season. Yeah. I did want to shout out one last thing, and uh, it's some news that we shared with our, our patrons this week, and that's, uh, we have a bit of a change coming to our Patreon. Uh, it's a, I guess, change or additions coming. So we're actually going to be, for our, our patrons, if you're a member, if you're part of our Patreon, or if you do want to join, we're going to be launching our Discord in January, which is super exciting. It's something that we've wanted to do for a while, but maybe haven't had the resources to do it. So that's coming. Uh, and we do also have a, a few changes. So our Tom Fiendel tier, which is our highest tier of our patron, we're going to be moving to a slightly different format. We usually do live sessions once a month. Uh, these have been fantastic. We've had so much engagement with these in terms of people choosing topics, people you know coming to the live sessions and interacting uh, with us where, where possible. But you know, logistically, it's really tough to do across multiple time zones, and we we do have you know we have listeners and viewers from all over the world. So we are going to be changing uh, that format slightly moving forward. Where uh, me and Brendan are going to do I guess more videos on our Patreon as well. You know, deep dives, analysis. Uh, we're going to you know even dive into like decks or dive into specific uh, events. You know, really in depth, and that's kind of. What that's going to look like going forward, again, with the the guidance of our, our patrons to kind of decide what content they want to see. We're still going to, that's not going anywhere. And yeah, we've got a bit more to come just for like the main channel in, in 2022. We've been listening to what you've been saying to us. You've left some amazing comments. So thank you to everyone who's left us some feedback and left us some comments of what, what content they want to see from us in 2022, whether that be on the main channel, whether it be with the pod, whether that be with our, our Patreon. Uh, and we have got a bit more to implement and we're excited to sort of, yeah, I guess ramp up once we get back to January, once we get back from, you know, vacation and uh, we move through the end of this national season. Yep, for sure. Well, I'm going to hit you all with some pre-episode shilling. So the <laughs> Arsenal Pass YouTube channel is close to 3,000 subscribers. Trying to get there before the end of the month. By the time you hear this, it will be pretty close to the end of the month. So if you're not subscribed, go hit that subscribe button. We're so, so, so close. Also, if you listen to us on a podcast service such as Apple, if you'd love to leave us a review, it helps us out a million. So thanks so much. Um, and last week's time of the round was T, right? Last week's time of the round was, was T, yeah. Tebow. Um, the road to nationals legend, always the bridesmaid, and <laughs> no, it's just a little joke because T got a lot of second places, but I'm sure his first place is coming soon. Anyway, a good conversation and a great, a great guy. So check it out. Um, and this week's time around, Hayden, who is it? Yeah, we've got Hamish from the UK Push the Point podcast who joins us. We talk about all sorts of random stuff. Uh, so, you know, we, we talk a bit about Flesh and Blood, but we also talk about, you know, Brendan's favorite Christmas movies. So stay tuned for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if anybody could guess that answer before they get there? <laughs> all right. And finally, a big shout out to all the Arsenal Pass patrons. There's over 300 of you now. Um, and yeah, the support has been amazing. Like I said, I'm going back to Durango, the place where we started Arsenal Pass. So it's kind of funny to look at the growth of the channel this past year in retrospect. It's been incredible. Um, the Arsenal Pass Patreon does have tons of extra content, including extra podcasts, what used to be a live session, but will be now extra videos. And if we throw up a deck tech on Arsenal Pass, we throw up the sidebar guide, written deck theory, ratios, everything you need to pick it up, start being competitive on the Arsenal Pass patreon so next week and yeah and finally next week tune in for our end of the year special podcast we go over our biggest level ups in 2021 and share exactly what we learned as fab players this year that improved our skill and knowledge well anyway hayden durango's gonna be pretty cold i've got my i've got my snow jackets on i got my new mittens and stuff but speaking of what's not cold you smell that? There's a little something burning on the grill, Hayden. You better check it out. Yeah, it's it's barbecue season over here, I'll tell you what, uh, right here in the Southern Hemisphere. And again, the Command Cookout section, if you do want to get your questions in, you can send them through to arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. You can tweet at us. Uh, we'll drop our Twitter handles at the end of the show. You can drop in the YouTube comments if you're watching or you do ever watch on YouTube. Um, or just any other way, really, that you want to get your question to us. But this week's question, Brendan, uh, just a bit of a fun question comes from comes from me. You know, we've we've been a little bit off topic this week with some things. Uh, we've been doing some really cool stuff with Welcome to Wraith videos, which I really enjoyed. 
we talked about you know your favorite christmas movie with hamish uh but i want to know you know what tv shows uh, have you been watching brendan and that question does come from me so I do wonder if anybody who listens to this thinks we actually practice and rehearse the uh, Command Cookout stuff because it is straight off the dome. <laughs> um, so yeah, TV shows. Well, what? Hayden, what do you think? Would you? What do you guess? I want you to take one guess about what I'm watching and what I'm enjoying. So I'm I'm pretty certain that you're probably working through some sort of Netflix shows. I don't know. Maybe you're watching uh, Peaky Blinders. I don't know. That's my guess. I have watched I have watched Peaky Blinders. So I actually don't watch very much TV, surprisingly. Um it's because I'm a boomer and I listen to audiobooks and fall asleep. But I have been rewatching Cowboy Bebop on Netflix because it is on there now. So I think I watched that like five or six years ago and finally rewatching it. It's very chill, very nostalgic. Um and I'm assuming you've seen that anime, Hayden, because if you haven't, you're living under a rock. I've seen Cowboy Bebop, yeah, but I haven't seen the live action Netflix adaptation oh, no, i'm not watching that one <laughs> so stay okay. away from the live actions what are you watching hayden what are you watching your little television over there yeah so i mean i've kind of wrapped up a few tv shows in the in the past few weeks um i'd say like tv is kind of or netflix in particular <laughs> i call it netflix time really it's kind of like the time that uh, me and my partner will sit down and we might watch stuff together so we've been watching uh, we've actually watching some of the marvel tv shows you know on disney uh, which I never got to. I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like a massive Marvel fan, but I do like, you know, the MCU and uh, especially certain parts of it. I went and saw Spider-Man, you know, the other day. Uh, and then we've been watching Hawkeye, which I've really been enjoying Hawkeye. Uh, if you if you haven't seen that, it's, uh, it's good. And then, yeah, just kind of waiting for, I guess, like, I really like smaller bite-sized pieces of, of TV, right? So a true detective kind of style, you know, these, these, uh, these mini series almost that are five, six, seven, eight episodes. And there's not been as maybe as many to end this year as as maybe I'd like that I want to watch. So um, yeah, you've seen just, Chernobyl. That's like yeah, of course, of course, yeah, exactly. That's 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 what I want. Good, I want man. Chernobyl. I want like the Bodyguard. I want these kind of these TV shows. So we'll see what comes out in in uh, the start of 2022. But those are the kind of TV shows that I'm looking for. Just things that I can I can watch over a couple of days when I have some downtime, and then maybe I don't need to watch anything for a while. So so in the Christmas season, I do have a recommendation. Okay, hit me. It's a uh, on Netflix, it's called The Alpinist. It's mostly a documentary, but it is freaking ridiculous. If anybody's ever seen the documentary about Alex Honnold, um, I forget the name of it, but he's a pretty famous solo free climber. Alex Honnold yep. is in this documentary, and he's just complimenting the guy that this one's actually about. Um, but it's incredibly shot, ridiculous story, and probably one of the most just, I don't know, well well done documentaries I've ever seen in my life. And I just randomly clicked on Netflix the other day. So The Alpinist, definitely check it out. Sweet. It's on Netflix. I mean, I do I do like good documentary TV shows. Um, well, I mean, I know it's a movie, but whether it be movie or TV shows, I've really been enjoying over the past year and a half the uh, F1 TV show, the Drive to Survive TV show. That's probably one of my t- favorite TV shows. I'm always anticipating the, the next season of that. Just because, I, you know, I was never really into like F1, for instance, into Formula 1 racing. But just the way the... The documentary is made the way that they um they structure it and just that sport actually is just ridiculous and i'm assuming it's gonna be similar with obviously so alex Hanold, he's the free solo guy right yeah 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 and like things like that are just you know these people are amazing and i love hearing their stories and also just watching how those when they're made well they're, they're made well right they really engross you oh, that's so 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 good well i mean i think that's probably the most off topic we've ever been but it's time for the main topic of the pod, Hayden. All right, let's get back on topic. So today, yeah, I, I'm pretty excited about this one, actually, because it's something that we haven't really done. I know back in episode eight, I think it was, we did kind of like five gameplay traps to avoid. And, um, you know, there was like a lot of really good response to, to that episode. And we want to, we don't usually, I guess, put things into like numbered order or things like that, because we talk more about like broad concepts. But we wanted to, I guess, like round out the year with just some of the things that, you know, these common play mistakes that we're seeing, maybe that we've talked about them in the past and they're really cropping back up again, or they're just things that are just ongoing and something that I think if you want to advance your game in Flesh and Blood, if you have maybe goals, uh, maybe you want to play competitively, maybe you just want to get a little bit better, maybe there's just a few things you want to work on, then I think these five mistakes are, are ones that uh, I know some of these, I definitely still make these mistakes and have to remind myself. Some of them I think I've learned about this year and, and some of them are maybe more fundamental um and we're going to talk through them and so there's no particular order to these uh well actually there is but the order isn't of importance for instance this is an order of probably things that we are seeing happen more often 
And I think there's a big part of that is that really comes down to the current sort of format we've had over Monarch and then into Tales of Aria that's been quite aggressive. I actually think it leads to quite a few of these that we're going to talk about today, Bryn. Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, let's get started. So number one, in terms of, you know, play mistakes to avoid we need to stop making is not defending enough. And I put in brackets here and at the right times. This is an interesting one. So for sure. I mean, like I've been asked this question like a million times, I think uh, mostly by people that don't play flesh and blood to like their kind of takeaway from their free two games of flesh and blood is like, why would I ever defend? Why wouldn't I just attack? Do yeah. you have an answer to that, Hayden? Why is blocking even important? Why don't I, if I can do more damage than my opponent by the, the number that's in the bottom right, why am I not always just attacking? Is there any nuance? So there's, there's levels to defending, right? And I think before we dive into this one and talk about probably some of the, I guess, the, the common pieces that are driving this mistake, I think, let's just kind of lay it out, first of all. So level one, really, when it comes to defending a flesh and blood is, does my hand, you know, do more damage than my opponent, right? So a bit of math. So if I can deal 13 and they come in for 12, then why would I defend, right? That's like number one, yeah? That's okay, I'm up one. But, okay, hold up, actually. I have a card that I just don't get to use. It's not going into my arsenal. It's going to be a dead card, defense for three. Well, that's a that's an easy card to defend with, right? Because it doesn't do anything. And now, actually, instead of doing maybe 12, you know, maybe 13, maybe I get to deal uh, 11 and I get to prevent three by defending with a card. So I'm actually up a damage on that hand we just talked about before. And that's kind of like level one, right? It's just working out this idea of, just pure math, like my hand against what my opponent's doing this turn, where does it roll that at? That's level one. And then what you're sort of, I guess, alluding to is is probably level two, which starts to become the importance of defending uh, a card. So, and probably when you get into the early ideas of the importance of defending a card, it becomes about on-hit effects, right? Like that's kind of the first one that you're probably introduced to in Flesh and Blood is, okay, my opponent's coming in with a Command and Conquer. I have a card in Arsenal. While these cards would help me have better output, if I lose my Arsenal card, I'm going to be down on that math equation, right? And my opponent's going to take a card from me, effectively, uh, and I'm going to take six life plus lose a card. So, defending with these two cards from hand, you know, cost me two cards, but uh, I save six life, effectively, right? I get to keep that card in Arsenal, and that's that's the common, right? It could be same thing with a snatch as well. Or well, if they snatch at the end of this combat chain, then they get an Arsenal card and they're up on a card. So you start thinking about less less about just the pure damage. Now you're thinking about card advantage, right? You're thinking about Who's who's losing and gaining a card uh, in this scenario, and that's that's kind of the next level that you get to. And then you can move beyond that, right? So you move beyond that to this idea of basically you start to think about tempo in a game, and this is the the hardest tempo. <laughs> the hardest concept to understand is is definitely tempo. So tempo is fundamental to the way Flesh and Blood is played, but it's also a concept that's really hard to understand. And I think before we kind of dive into the idea of, of defending uh, and how you know we're seeing mistakes happen, I think we need to talk a little bit about tempo because we talked about these levels of defending where you get to. And I think most players that probably listen to the podcast are probably somewhere you know in that level two area, right? They, they're very good at defending mathematically the, the best hand or the best way. Uh, they're good at recognizing on-hit effects. But then the next piece is probably about like, Tempo, gaining and losing tempo. So it, tempo is momentum essentially, right? It's uh, usually offensive in nature. It's when a player is on the front foot and they're doing the attacking probably. Uh, and they're usually trading in cards uh, or pushing damage and getting on hit effects. So some combination of those. It doesn't have to be all of those, but they're probably playing out their, their hands aggressively. Uh, they're trading in you know, for, for damage over, the, over top of the card. So maybe their hand comes in for 14 and the average hand you know, defends or attacks for 12. So they're, they're getting two damage and they're keeping, they're keeping the tempo, so to speak. Or they keep presenting these on hit effects. A classic one is like Dorinthia. Dorinthia is a really good example of tempo and flesh and blood. So Dorinthia is consistently attacking. Uh, maybe they've got a counter on their Dawnblade and now they're trying to keep the tempo, right? They're trying to keep that counter on Dawnblade by continually using their hand, either, you know, their whole hand, so four to five cards, or maybe three cards because they defend with one card, but they're still keeping offensive and they're still trying to keep that, that tempo in mind and keep that counter up or maybe even gain a second counter and, and build that tempo and momentum up even more. So that is what at its essence like a real core is what uh is what tempo is and it's it doesn't as i said it doesn't have to be all of those things you know on hit effects damage trading cards um but it is going to be some some combination of it and it's probably the thing we're talking about when we talk about defending and mistakes the one that we're seeing quite a quite a bit of or i know even you know i still make this mistake sometimes is not understanding the tempo side of defending so Am I defending for the right reasons is kind of where we get to when we talk about mistakes. We think people are doing a pretty good job of the math side of it, you know, trading hands. We think people are pretty good at defending on hit effects. But when it gets to the side of like when to defend for tempo reasons, you know, either to prevent your opponent from having tempo 
or to def- you know to to defend and then take some tempo on your side that's probably where it becomes a bit more difficult right yep for sure i mean like i in my opinion a nuanced scenario of this is like you're playing against katsu right um normal attacks normal kind of combat chains and then boom he draws a natty surging strike into a whelming gust wave and then you know you want to be able to keep your cards maybe do a little bit of damage but keep an arsenal as well and then you see the natty whelming and you're like okay well the chances of him having you know this kind of exact natural hand right where he draws the surging into the whelming it's not super likely so maybe this turn is kind of a turn where i you know i take a seat back i defend out you know i just make sure i'm not going to get hit for like 50 or something crazy if i block this incorrectly so that's i think if you look back at welcome to rate that was also a um, a scenario of tempo where you would decide to yeah maybe this turn i'll block out right because it's not super likely that they're going to every single turn kind of do a surgery strike into a whelming gust wave. So I take the L on that turn, block it out, and then try to get to a more reasonable turn cycle on the following turn. Yeah. And to be honest, we could do a whole podcast series on, on tempo and flesh and blood. Um, it's, a, it's a concept that I think is, again, really hard to understand. I don't even feel like personally I understand it, you know, pro- that proficiently in flesh and blood because it's so hard to know at any given point in the game where the tempo is maybe shifting and i think the best players are those that are really good at that but it, it takes so much time and you don't always get it right is the other thing but if we talk about defending specifically with with tempo which which is what we're doing that's a great example right is this idea of you know i could be trying to shift the tempo this turn uh, but if i don't defend out maybe my opponent gets to you know extend their their sort of their tempo gain and then maybe i come back in with my reinar deck for 14 damage um but my opponent can just take it because actually they've already gained such a a lead with with having this tempo or they've they've kept momentum you know they've still got two two counters on their dawn blade okay well now they just use their life as a resource um and take the 14 damage and then keep keep the tempo and we we could honestly talk for that uh, talk about that sort of aspect of you know using your life as a resource to keep tempo for so long but if i talk about just defending i think that example of what could my opponent do next is such a good way to think about it so the the whelming gust wave example okay well if i don't block this whelming gust wave i'm effectively giving my opponent a card uh what is the extra happening so you you move away from this pure okay uh surging strike into whelming gust wave into uh i don't know a scar for a scar is is 13 damage you move away from that to go okay well if they draw this extra card, what could it be? Um, could that get them the zero cost card to then go and throw to get their McGinchy release and now they're on a combo line? Or could it give them the resources to pay for that card? Uh, does that also mean the mask of momentum gets gets you know gets triggered? What is this? They've already got the tempo and now what happens if I don't defend well? Does that tempo extend? In other circumstances, it might not, right? You might be playing against a deck with a low amount of on-hit effects or they're, they're having a lower turn. Maybe you're playing against a Runeblade who just plays three non-attack actions and then an attack action and they have no cards left in hand one resource up you know they're going to come in with rosetta thorn but you know exactly what they're going to do on that turn and you know that what that damage looks out like the the on-hit effects are really low you know etc so that's kind of probably where a lot of a lot of us are playing in terms of the idea of of defending um and i wanted to ask brendan so if we're trying to get better at this concept if we're trying to make sure that we we move past just the, the pure damage calculation, just the pure on-hit effects. What are some of the things that we can work on to, to get better at this idea of defending correctly? So I think that you can understand sort of some of the play patterns that your opponent's deck is trying to work towards in order to win. So if we go back to that Dorinthia example, like a really good example of tempo, like you said, is keeping the counters on the Dawnblade. But if you think about a lot of tall Dorinthia builds and how they actually try to win the game, it's around cards like Steelblade Supremacy um, and yeah, pretty much Steelblade Supremacy, sometimes Iron Song Termination. So, you know, kind of a classic example of this is like your uh, your opponent that's playing Dorinthia has their five-card hand now, they took a bit of damage, and they go, boom, Spoils of War, Steelblade Supremacy. That's all the information you're presented with, and they have um, two more cards in hand, right? Well, maybe you you did draw your kind of big damage spell, but you're playing Ninja, you drew your Magenshi release and your Surging Strike together, but your opponent's still on a pretty high life total. Maybe this turn you're actually kind of defending out because you're like, okay, Steel Blade Supremacy, they only have three of them in their deck, and this is usually this is the kind of this is the card pattern that they're looking for to really swing um, the tempo of the game and to really you know, take away with the lead. So it's like, okay, this turn I'm going to defend, and you know, the following turns, like this is the one card combo that I really need to look out for. So even if I have sort of planned around, you know, taking, um, you know, attacking the next turn or whatever it is you're like okay i'll i'll ditch that plan for now i'll defend them out and take this resource out of my opponent's deck by blocking out their stupid supremacy turn yeah yeah it's, it's, it's a perfect example it's a rule of thumb right one of the others people might do in that situation is 
well, I'm going to block out any Warriors Valor turn because that's going to help them create tempo and get go again. And then as soon as they just come up with a naked Dawnblade, uh, that's my turn to basically try yep, and swing some tempo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a great example of the transitioning that defensive into the offensive side of, of tempo. And I think one of the, for me personally, one of the main things I think that we can do as players to try and get better at this concept of, of defending at the right times, especially, is try and analyze the game state. When you're playing... It, when you're playing a game of flesh and blood and you know what you're doing so you know what your plan is you know where you're kind of going the next thing you need to do is like understand what's happening in the current state of the game so okay my opponent has the tempo um and if i throw my whole hand here to defend what does that gain me like does that does that just keep status quo does that potentially take tempo away from them because they lose all their dawnblade canis for instance uh or does it leave me in a position to actually get blown out by something like a, a singing steel blade and it's always about just analyzing where you are in the game and working out, okay, what do I what do I need to do next? Where is my next step in this game? And it's about, I actually think the most important thing is thinking about, rather than just just focusing on the, 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 the turn cycle, is thinking about a turn ahead, a phase ahead, as much as possible where you can, where it makes sense. And this is not always possible in games because, you know, you're in the first cycle of the deck, you don't know what's coming, you're playing... Sometimes it is correct to play hand-to-hand, -hand, but more often than not, it's it's correct to start thinking about, okay, what happens next? What is the card I need to get into my arsenal to defend out on a turn, then the next turn swing tempo? There's there's all these ideas, and uh, it's not simple, but I think that it's one of the main things that, that we can do as players is just take a step back in certain game states and, and just analyze the game state. Great to do in testing as well or at lo local events. When you have a turn that feels like it's really important because you know it, it, maybe your opponent's going to keep this tempo uh, or they're going to lose it here, uh, the, the perfect time to just take a step back and analyze it and maybe even something that you can talk about with you know your friends or uh, with your opponent after the game is like go back to that turn and, and have a chat about it mm -hmm. for sure cool um let's move on number number two is and my this favorite is, one <laughs> this do you know this is my favorite one actually is blaming variants uh or luck or claiming to be unlucky and getting high rolled this is, uh, <laughs> this is an interesting one because I definitely claim to be high rolled sometimes. And I, I you know, know you do too, Brendan, from time to time. But sometimes you do just get done in, right? Sometimes, uh, and this happens probably I'd say more so in Blitz games, you know, your opponent just intimidates your whole hand on turn one and comes in for, I don't know, 15 damage with that Goliath Gauntlet and, and the Alpha Rampage and, and whatnot. Or they double Blood Rush Bally you or, you know, Wizard just has Stir Forked, you know, Blazing on turn two, whatever it is. I think that happens a bit in, in Blitz. But more often than not, the, the fact of, of flesh and blood is that no game is played perfectly i've seen very very few perfect games of flesh and blood and i've played a lot of games of flesh and blood there's so many decision points in a game of fab that inevitably somewhere along the the way you could have done something different or your opponent could have done something different it could be as small as the card you pitched it could be as big as you know what you actually the line you took choosing not to defend with your whole hand and then coming back with your whole hand there's so many things in a game, uh, you know, the, the, the one card you blocked with as a defender with as opposed to the other card, there's, there's so many things in a game of Flesh and Blood, these decision points that almost no game is going to be perfect. And you can look back at a game of Flesh and Blood and pinpoint things that, that went wrong. Or, you know, oh, actually, if I had done this, if I had played this line slightly differently, uh, you know, if I had kept my sink below an arsenal instead of playing it on that turn, I probably could have been able to prevent the uh, the reprise effect from Dorinthia next turn. There's so many things like this that, that happens in a game of Flesh and Blood. And I think the worst thing that we can do as players is turn around and go, oh, I got so unlucky there. Or, oh, yeah, if my opponent hadn't drawn that. Um, but, I mean, there was always a chance they were going to draw that card. Did you did you think about the chance they were going to draw that card? Or did it just happen and you go, oh, I'm so unlucky? Because I think if we do that as players, right, Brendan, I think we've definitely learned from this, is that what do you learn from the game? What do you just walk away, right? And what have you actually learned from, whether it's a win or a loss, to be honest? Yeah, so every loss or failure is an opportunity to learn, and I mean, I think this is definitely the worst habit that anybody picks up when they come to the game. Um, it's not that every game is, you know, a void of variance, right? Like, there is variance in the game, and sometimes you will lose to, uh, you know, forces outside of your control, but I will tell you that 90%, 99% of the time you think it is like that, it's not. Um, it's very, very few times in this game, and even if it is, you can take that time to kind of reflect and figure out what you could have done better. Maybe what you could have done better is just you could have, could have reacted better, right? Um, it is 100% of the time the incorrect reaction to be angry about variants or being high-rolled because that is literally part of the game we play. Um, yeah, like if we didn't want that, we would play chess. But yeah, I think this is something a lot of people can improve upon. Um, I think every player goes on the journey of improving upon this, right? Like Definitely. almost none of us start from 
not complaining about this, but you know, the more you're open to learning from your losses or your mistakes, or even losses that you thought weren't mistakes, um, I think the faster you'll improve as a player. Yeah, it's a, it's a well, at least personally for me, it was really a mindset shift of okay, when I play games, uh, I'm going to focus on my play. So yeah, maybe my opponent does hit slightly above average draws. They you know they draw blood rush bell into blood rush bellow they rip natural three barraging beat down on the final turn that they need there's all these things but that's out of my control what is in my control and what i can definitely take away and learn from is what are the decision points in the game that maybe i could have improved on or what led to the situation so actually if i roll it back um the reason that my opponent had the opportunity to rip three barraging beat down off the top of the deck and intimidate the rest of my hand is uh, it's because i didn't put that defense reaction into arsenal earlier that i could have could have utilized on this final turn or I attacked a bit inefficiently because I let the tempo slip away two turns ago, and now my opponent, instead of being on one and having to defend with one of those barrage and beatdowns from hand, they're actually on four, and they take three down to one, for instance. So there's all these decision points, and you can roll it. That's that's an example of rolling it back like a turn or two before the game ends. But you know, I was playing a, a draft the other day, and on turn one, I had like quite a tough decision to make about which uh, which card I was going to play, whether I was going to try and set up for a future turn, or whether I was going to try and push damage. And I decided to push damage, and then I just thought about that turn for the whole game. And then at the end of the game, uh, with my opponent, we just talked about the play. Like, you know, was it better to push damage there, or was it better to set up for a future turn because of the cards in my deck, because of what my opponent was likely to do? Uh, there were so many factors about it, and that's kind of the tough thing when you make decisions in this game is you have you know, limited information at the time. But as you go through the game, more information becomes available. Uh, and that's, I do want to state, I do want to say that's a bit of a, sometimes you can fall into some traps of like, oh, I should have done this, this, and this um, in hindsight, because, you know, you have the information available to you. But in the moment, you've got to make the best decision you can. But what you can learn from is, okay, with the information I had at that time, could I have made a, a different play or could something have maybe gone a bit different for me if I had decided to, you know, do something slightly different? For sure. I was actually playing a high-stakes Welcome to Wraith constructed game, and um, I was playing Ninja <laughs> Control, a deck that aims to you know, take very little damage, and my opponent was playing Reinar just turn one, you know, intimidated my whole hand, hit me for like 14 damage. And, you know, I could have been tilted, you know, I could have been tilted, but then I decided to play out of my mind and just mentally dismantle my opponent throughout the game, and, uh, you know, well, you'll see. You'll see uh, what brilliant. Thanks, Brennan. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> good example, though. I mean, that's like tilt is one thing, right? And having something happen early in the game that's really high variance and going on tilt, that's that's one thing completely. And that's something that I think all players, you know, need to work on. But this, what I'm more interested in is like this idea of, you know, um, game finishes up. Oh, I got so unlucky on that turn. And that's the thing that you focus on. As I say, my biggest thing is who cares about that? That's happened. The variance has happened. The the really low likelihood that something has happened is has happened. That you can't do anything about that. But actually, I went on this play pattern in that game. Um, that you know, actually in hindsight, thinking about it, didn't feel good. I didn't get my opponent trading cards the way I wanted to. It didn't play out quite the way I wanted to. And those are the things that I'm more interested in. You know, was the actual strategy I had in that game and that matchup good or? Was the way that I sequenced my plays in that game good? Did I utilize my arsenal in the right way? Did I, you know, actually that game went way longer than I thought it was. Did I pitch the right cards early on? There's so, so, so many things that I can think about that aren't, yeah, my opponent ripped this or I bricked and drew two quad red hands in a row. I will say the last thing before we on this point for me is that those kind of stats of like, oh, I was a 10% chance to draw the back-to-back -back quad red hands or I was a you know, 2% chance to draw the back-to-back -back quad red hands. Those are kind of, to a degree pointless um if you're just going to state those and say i got super unlucky but where they are actually really important is understanding deck construction so okay actually hold up i drew you know i drew multiple back-to-back -back hands of red cards and my deck really needs resources do i have enough resources in my deck or do i have enough you know blue cards do I have enough yellows do i have the right mix of cards in my deck and over larger sample sizes and actually just using just pure like math of probability of drawing these cards in your hands you can work out okay actually is my deck built correctly? And if it starts to, you can play a bit by feel. You know, if you, you're playing games and you draw lots of quad red hands um, and they really, really impact your game, you know, you're actually like, you know, you're, you're losing massive percentages on those games, then yeah, that's when you can say, okay, actually maybe there's something I need to do here. Uh, but if it's one, you know, the game is a sample size or there's two game sample size, uh, it's, it's really hard to read into. I think you can only really use just, just some pure math on that one. Sure. Good to keep in mind though. <laughs> All right, Brendan, I'm going to let you talk about this one because it's something that I know uh, you've spoken about on past pods before. We've talked about it before. You're really big on this one, and that's managing life threshold. So what does that mean? 
Yeah, so I think a lot of people, I mean, the main reason I'm, I'm up on this one, as you say, is because I think it's the one that's least talked about, and just like the mistake that I, I mean, honestly, I see pro players make this mistake consistently. It's so bizarre. But uh, managing life thresholds, right? So let's just, let's explain this through some examples, right? So breakpoints in games. Here's some examples. So if you're at 11 life versus Kano, um, if you're in Nolan 3, you die to Sturfork to Metacarpus node. There's nothing you can do about it. So not going down to 11 is probably pretty good. Once you go down to 11, the game is no longer in your hands, right? Your choices are extremely limited. Uh, going down to 1 against Kadachis. Low, lower life totals against uh, heroes that can dominate you, like Bravo. So you have no choice to... Uh, so like they can you know, they'll come over, whether it's for 5 or for 8, whatever it is, there's going to be no interaction. Uh, going down to one against heroes that have in, like pinging arcane damage, so something like a rune blade. Now you no longer have a choice whether you want to commit an entire card to one arcane damage. Not ideal. Going down to two against Rosetta Thorn, same thing. It's essentially it's essentially the same thing as being a one. If you know they're going to be able to swing it at you, there's nothing you can do, and you're dead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I think the the way to sum this up is the concept is effectively about avoiding a life total where your choice as a player is either. Is your choices as a player are either eliminated or drastically reduced? Yeah, and I wanted to say because this is I, I really do like this topic, and I like that we actually talk about it quite a bit in our our games we play. It's usually if we're trying to work up a work out a matchup in any given like constructor format, breakpoints is actually something that we talk about, right, Brennan? Like we are maybe we're working even like in the the chain season, right? We spend a lot of time working out breakpoints on Husk and given matchups and where we wanted to go to before we felt comfortable to defend with a Husk or where we get the best value before you know, for instance, that Husk is now at a break point where I, on my life where I'm going to lose it. And these break points, so you talk about like you go down to one against Kadachis or you go down to two against Rosettathon. It's not just that specific last turn. And this is kind of the next step that players can take. So the first step you can take is, okay, first of all, let's keep in mind these break points and what happens if I get that low. But actually, how am I playing the game to these break points? So against, let's say Ninja, for instance, as soon as I start getting below like five, six life, uh, if I have a big mountain to climb in terms of what my opponent's doing, I'm already in the danger zone, right? Because they're now pinging through one at a time. They get to play a play pattern that maybe is slightly different. Whereas if the game's close, you know, they're also down at five or six life. Maybe I'm less worried about those Kadachis. Um, but if there's potential that, you know, they can just take sort of, they can leak damage and still keep it blue and then come in with those Kadachis every time. Now I'm starting to get into trouble. So it's not just the, the, the one turn of dropping down to those life thresholds. One of the really important things to consider is like all the turns leading up to it. Like how is the game being played out to the point where you get to those life thresholds? contextual based on your deck as well so if we think sure. about a mega efficient deck like chain right you could block with three cards have no card in arsenal keep one card and then flip a seeds um an attack action pitch the blue you would come in for four shackle gogan and then nebula blade for four again like that's a good turn but like if i'm playing dorinthia i know that in order to like really swing the tempo to really hurt my opponent i'm probably going to need a five card hand so if i'm allowing myself to get ticked down you know i don't really have the tempo or anything like that once i get to a low enough life total there's nothing I can do, right? Because I'm not going to be able to string together that five-card hand, especially if I don't have my armor to block with. So you need to understand what your deck, like how your deck turns the corner. You know, Chain can, he can block with a lot of cards and then get enough shackles. And then, you know, he is going to probably turn the corner by not blocking in a turn, but he can go down to one card and consistently do eight, well, not anymore, but consistently do eight damage to the opponent. Like that's not a thing when you're playing something like Dorinthia or Katsu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's about what your deck needs to do and what your opponent deck is trying to do. It's about understanding the matchup. That's how you're going to better understand life thresholds. And uh, it comes down to use of equipment as well, which is something that you yes. know we talked about last week on the uh, or the week before on the pod when we talked about the importance of equipment is that the the life thresholds actually are really, really relevant because, um, I mean, you also have like things like scale cap, for instance, which are really relevant with life thresholds. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, sometimes you want to be on higher life, right? You turn out your opponent's running a bunch of scar for scars and a bunch of life for lives. So it's like, um, you know, maybe you want, to be on oh, sorry, you want to be on lower life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the other one doesn't want to be on higher life. It's like, yeah, some you need to be cognizant of what your opponent has in their deck and manage your life total accordingly. If we're going to talk more about armor, this is the su- this is the part of the subject that I'm most passionate on is people block so badly with their armor, right? Like not all of your life points are equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have 40 life points to work with, but some are a lot more important than others, especially the ones where you're going to die. Um, and not everything you block is equal either. You know, some damage is just raw damage. Other damage has a nice on-hit effect with it, right? So you're blocking out this raw damage with your skull cap when you're at like 34 life because for some reason and mentally you feel like yeah if i'm on if i'm on 34 and i'm not 32 something is different in this game a lot of times it isn't and you're probably thinking oh this is crazy i would never make that decision watch watch people do this it's the craziest thing i've ever seen in my life but there's some kind of mental thing that happens with people when they get behind 
by a significant life total, they'll go ahead and block with a piece of armor just to reduce the damage. Yep. And you'll see them lose games because of it. it is incredible. The one place where this is sometimes a thing is, so if I know that I'm going to be at a higher life total for the entire game, because I'm about to do this, I have my big Art of War turn, you know, I'm about to turn the corner and I know my deck is just going to punish the opponent. You can sometimes block with your skull cap just to get that two block off it because you're never going to be able to get it um, in the future. I would caveat this by, say, so by saying that I think 90% of the people that, that 90% of the time people do this and they use that exact scenario as the reasoning for blocking with the skull cap that way, they're wrong. I agree. <laughs> yeah, usually it's wrong. But yeah, I mean, your your armor is there so you can you can turn the corner, right? You can block out the unhit effect. You can not block with cards from hand and then boom, you can do your big five card hand and turn around. It's so so important and um yeah, I mean, not all damage is the same. <laughs> not created equal yeah and i don't i don't want to talk about this too much because we're kind of i guess going off where we are but it is really important and one of the things i do i do want to say on that is that it's opportunity cost that's the best way to think about your equipment and also your life thresholds is the opportunity cost so if i defend with that skull cap early what's the opportunity cost okay actually it can't defend a really relevant on hit effect late game um it can't let me swing tempo by defending with just my equipment it won't let me um defend out with one card from my hand plus a piece of equipment if i don't have it whereas early in the game you know maybe that that opportunity cost is is smaller and then in or larger and then in the in the late game right one of the other things you could have is okay actually i i don't have this piece of equipment now um my game plan has to change for instance one one thing i like to do when i was playing rhino for instance right is like trade cards with people keep life as even as possible and try and keep my equipment and then on the final turn before i go for like my big you know like multiple barraging beatdown turn or multiple like a big blood rush bellow turn throw the equipment in front of their own head effects take some damage and then i'm swinging tempo i'm using my equipment to swing tempo in this instance and we've you notice all these things we talk about uh are kind of intertwined but um yeah it's it's really important and it really plays into this idea of life thresholds as well with your equipment yep if you like if we're looking at a popular deck in the meta to take something from you look at briar like a lot of briar mirrors are decided by how the how the players will block with the armor mm -hmm. um you'll see a significant difference between the you know the top briar players and how they choose to block and when they choose to block with the armor versus you know um some other players that are maybe not having as much success this was extremely important in the chain mirror and this was actually where most of the skill was uh skill gap or like kind of skill edge was gained was uh, efficiently managing husk right because husk goes away 13 life but also goes away at the beginning of your turn it doesn't go away in your opponent's turn and it's at 13 right so it's like do i need to go to 13 or do i need to avoid going to 13 so is 14 okay well it's actually not because there's a lot of arcane damage in your opponent's deck and all this kind of stuff and there was like this little husk dance that you yeah. could do with the opponents and you could really outplay your opponents so badly um if you knew how to kind of correctly dance around those life totals yep completely agree we actually recorded a game where we played a chain mirror where there was a big husk dance between me and brendan in the mid game um, unfortunately we had some tech difficulties with the video and we, we can never put it up but it's so true this this idea of the use of equipment and then also like the life thresholds piece of it around okay where, where's my where's my key life threshold and you can come up with some like rules of thumb as well around your life threshold for any given matchup like you talked before about the the kadachi katsu thing okay actually getting under maybe eight life is really dangerous for me in this given matchup or maybe actually i don't care until i get to three so it's going to depend on your deck and, and also the matchup yeah for sure Cool. Let's move on to number four. So number four is sideboarding for a hero or a matchup and not siding for a game plan in that matchup. And this is something I think we've talked about pieces of this before, but I really want to wrap this up in a bow because I'm kind of seeing a lot of this, I think, even um, whether it be, you know, at like the calling level, whether it be at like armory level. And this, if I explain this effectively, what this is, is you make sideboarding decisions based on trying to bring cards in for a matchup. So uh, the, the the classic is, okay, I bring in six defense reactions here because my opponent is playing Briar or they're playing on-hit effects that have breakpoints at four. And what we're often not doing in that situation is we're not siding for an actual game plan. We're just saying, okay, well, I want these defense reactions to defend out or I want extra attack actions because I want these the threat density to be higher. And the most important thing to like consider here is like, what is that doing to your game plan? If my game plan is I'm playing an aggressive Katsu deck and all of a sudden I bring Flick Flax and Sing Blows into my deck, what does that do to my game plan? Is my game plan probably has to completely change. But I think what, uh, what, what we're, I'm seeing a lot and what I know I've done in the past is not actually thinking about what that means for my game plan and how I'm going to end up, you know, enacting the match sort of as I want it to go. I end up drawing these awkward hands because I have these defense reactions 
I now become a defensive deck or a mid-range deck and it just doesn't work with my other cards because oh actually they defend for two so if I want to block out a whole hand uh, it doesn't really work for me so yeah do you have anything to kind of add on this Brendan in terms of for what sure. that looks like yeah, my favorite example of this is actually in the current meta is Viscerai, and a lot of nuance of Viscerai comes comes in with knowing how to sideboard and knowing how that changes your game plan because it drastically affects it. So you see a lot of Viscerai players, they'll be like, okay, I'm playing against Briar, I'm playing against this on-hit effect deck. 9D reacts. Okay, that's fine. But then they go through half their deck, they're building the rune chance, and they get their big Sonata, and they've got a they got a few rune chance now, but you know, there's still a lot of D reacts left in their deck, and they're not really you know, kind of keeping in mind how that affects what they're about to do. They pop this claw, they sonata, and they hit three D reacts and the sonata like, oh I'm so unlucky. And like, <laughs> no, that's that's like that's the that's the dance, right? Like that's the debt you're paying for your D reacts. And like it changes the game playing significantly because now maybe you have to wait a lot longer. Even if you have enough rune chance, like you have a lot of rune chance to really swing at your favor, you might have to wait till you see more D reacts just because your Sonata is going to blow, right? Because e the, the cost of each uh, defense reaction in that Sonata is just massive. Um, and it changes the game plan significantly. Yeah, good example. There's so many of this. There's there's the idea of taking out, you know, zero cost cards and you're putting in like CNCs, for instance, into your deck. Well, how, how are you paying for that? How does that change your game plan? You know, I want to sideboard these CNCs in my Briar deck. Okay, if you're playing a zero cost Briar deck, how do you plan to pay for those? The opportunity cost is, is comes in again. And uh, I like that you talked about, you know, being unlucky. You you woven, uh, you know, one of mm -hmm. our, our number two sort of principle there are all these mistakes that are happening. And and I'll bring in, I guess, the idea of, of um, you know, how you're going to pay for these cards. And it's there's so many there's so many examples of this even down to okay i'm playing a rune blade and you know it's similar to that uh that viscera example maybe i'm playing a tempo build but i'm bringing in uh, defense reactions and i'm taking out non-attack actions from my deck actually my non-attack action count is really low now how am i going to have these these turns i need to have i'm drawing hands with no non-attack actions in them because i've i've taken those out of my deck so there's there's always an opportunity cost to what you're doing with your sideboard and if you have a really good core game plan with your deck, that's amazing. You've, you're in the right place for deck building and, and how you want to enact a match. Now, when you think about any given matchup and, and how you actually want to play that out, now you need to think about, okay, what's actually changing? What are the cards I'm bringing in and taking out changing about my deck? And is this actually the right decision? Or do I need to approach this from a, maybe a different angle of attack? Maybe maybe I actually have, you know, if I use the cards for example again, I want to be a bit more defensive. Well, actually, maybe I move away from an aggro plan in my deck and I move to a mid-range plan and then I have more combo cards that work with Flick Flack just naturally, for instance. Yeah, definitely. Cool. And number five, wrapping up our, our last one on these, uh, you know, things in gameplay that, that uh, we need to stop doing. I know you're pretty passionate about this one as well, Brennan, is playing hand-to-hand. -hand. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, so obviously in Flesh and Blood, every single turn, you're going to be drawing, you know, at the end of your turn, you'll be drawing four cards. After the first turn of the game, you both will draw up to four. Like, it's very easy when you first start the game to play, you know, those four cards out, do as much damage as possible, block as efficiently as possible. Like, if you're already blocking as efficiently as possible, and you're trying to win sort of the, the net numbers game on each turn cycle, I guess you're already at, like, you know, level 1.5, right? What comes after that is, like, you have to realize that you're, like how am i actually winning the game there's there's more to usually winning a game than just playing four cards um and like there's core strategies that your deck is playing to we talked about a, a warrior strat like a warrior earlier right a tall warrior like yeah you can do a lot of damage you can come over the top you know you can surprise them with some reprise but how are you usually winning that game it's usually around your steel blade supremacies and sometimes your 20 blades and you're looking to set up those big turns and if you just play these four cards to four cards they won't, they're very unlikely to be naturally set up. Another way to, you know, talk about not playing hand to hand is investing in the arsenal. The arsenal is an investment for the future turn. And it's incredibly important. I think effectively using the arsenal is really where the first, like a flesh and blood, blade, flesh and blood player, when they first start out, that's their first big level up, right? Effectively defending. And then once they learn how to utilize the arsenal is really when they get to the next level, right? Because there's such a difference between a four card hand and a five card hand, which is effectively what an arsenal is a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a few levels to the the playing hand-to-hand -hand kind of ideology and, and how this plays into the core concept of Flesh and Blood. So kind of hit the nail on the head. The first one is that idea of just, just playing out four cards or we talked about it earlier, trading damage, right? So are you, are you up on damage? Uh, are you winning that turn cycle? So I have defend with two cards, come back with two cards. Okay, that's I'm up on this turn cycle. And then the next thing, and which I think is where probably I'm seeing the most mistakes, to be honest, from the you know players that would probably listen to our podcast or that I've experienced in, in my testing in the past um, that I've had to work on, is you can win every turn cycle, right? And still lose the game. <laughs> because maybe I'm winning every turn cycle by one or two damage, but my opponent's actually getting the best cards out of my deck 
and you know maybe defending with some pretty crappy cards they don't care about in their deck and they have actually you know they're, they're pitched for the end of the game or they uh they lose five turn cycles in a row by one or two damage and then they've got a blood rush bellows and they've set up the big turn and i take you know 10 damage and my swing back is really poor well yeah i won five turn cycles in a row but they just blew me out on that one and i'm now behind in this game and that could happen two or three times and so the the next concept is like just understanding the the actual most important turn cycles of the game and which cards are most important to that you know trading up cards is a really important concept for instance so if i'm getting two of the best cards from my opponent for one card that really doesn't matter to me um you see this a lot in limited okay i come in with a, a wounding bull or whatever I come in for six damage my opponent blocks with like two of the best cards in their deck perfect i'm i'm in a really good spot here um so yeah that's kind of i think like level three to this idea of playing hand to hand and it's it's hard to do it, it really is because it, it depends on again the matchup you're playing the the deck you're playing um but one of those things that you get rewarded for by uh, understanding first of all you know the deck that you're playing playing it more regularly and also the matchup yeah one of the first dominant decks of flesh and blood was actually you know built on losing 95 percent of turn cycles and then just winning the last few right with drone brutality it would just attrition you out take all of your good cards this is back when the card pool was a little mm-hmm. bit weaker and then it would just have drone brutality when you just had a bunch of blues yep. <laughs> so exactly yeah and so we we'll probably see that a little bit less now but the, the concept and the idea of of uh winning a turn cycle versus winning you know key moments in the matchup is still really really important um especially in actually i think even to be honest more so in a format that's so fast uh maybe you're okay to lose two or three turn cycles but then where's your big punch you know where's that steel blade supremacy um uh you know iron sword determination turn or whatever like those are the those are the turns that are going to matter and, and then you start getting into the idea of you know setups and if i've got hands and stuff but yeah playing hand to hand has levels to it and i think you one of the best things you can do first of all is, as maybe a player teaching players to play the game is help them with that kind of idea of winning the turn cycle and then the next piece and where a lot of us are probably at still is this idea of getting the best efficiency out of um, out of a game as opposed to best efficiency out of you know maybe it's even four or five turn cycles in a row it's uh, playing it more holistically yep for sure I, like you said like the final evolution to that is you, you every time every kind of hand you're thinking how am i actually winning this game and i think that that's kind of like a core way to approach <laughs> um flesh and blood like yeah. once you get to that point it's just everything it's just how does this contribute to me actually winning the game which sounds so simple but it's actually so complicated and most people don't think that way yeah it's really hard we i think we've become a bit of a meme in the past for saying you know pitch to win the game that was a classic arsenal passism you know um but it i'll extend that even further uh just play to win the game you know understand whether you need to be winning turn cycles maybe your role isn't to win turn cycles for instance it's actually to uh not play hand-to-hand or what's to play like blocks of five card hands so it's going to be different every time and and that's one of them honestly game you know plays simple but does hard and that's that's one of the cool things about flesh and blood I, yeah i love that's an arsenal passism uh it's so funny because like the concept of like play to win the game like i think a lot of people hear them like who plays to lose the game yeah. i've been to multiple professional level events like limited events where we were playing sealed my opponent was playing 45 cards and then decided to take eight damage from me for no reason to try to swing back that makes no freaking sense unless you're about to hit me for like 25 right makes no sense like their whole entire deck has diluted its um you know it's a it's efficiency and it's attacking it's like attacking potential just so that they can fatigue me out and yet they have this bad deck that's built to fatigue and then they decide to take half their life total to come back for yep. like a similar amount it's it's crazy like you think like oh everybody plays to win the game yes but not everybody thinks about how to win the game while they're playing yeah not everyone is able to play to win the game on every single decision they make in a game and that's that's effectively what it comes down to the the level up i guess is play to win the game at every moment of the game and that's uh, that's difficult it's hard to do <laughs> definitely anyway brendan on that note that wraps up our, our five mistakes that we think you know players can improve on or, or need to stop making in order to really take these these level ups and take these next steps in the game and, and as we say some of these are ones that we're experiencing firsthand um, maybe in our own testing that we're still seeing things that we're seeing you know other players make whether they be at like armories callings etc um, and we again we listed these kind of in probably the order that we're we're seeing them a lot especially and i think it's just so prevalent in this meta some of these ones we talked about early on with this idea of you know not defending enough or at the right times um blaming variants or like i feel like that's cropped up more for me recently and i think the reason for that one is because there's just a bit more variance in the game than we used to have in welcome to wraith um and that's that's fine but it's about managing variance and, and understanding it so yeah I, I enjoyed this one 
for sure. And no Arsenal Pass episode would end without a proper amount of shilling, which I guess is <laughs> Do a really job these days. So I just want to shout out the YouTube channel again, Arsenal Pass is available on youtube but it's a lot more than just this podcast it's gameplay it's deck text it's everything you need to be the best flesh and blood player you can we are so close to 3,000 subscribers go shoot a subscription if you haven't yet and hayden and i are both located on twitter i'm located at brennan apg hayden is located at fiendale so f-y-e-n underscore dale and finally a big shout out and thank you to all of our patrons the arsenal pass does have or arsenal pass patreon does have tons of extra content if you're interested go check it out um you know we love interacting with people on there anyway that's going to be it. Shoot us what you think should have, like, what you th- what mistakes you think people are making that you thought should have made the list that didn't. Um, and I guess until next time, we'll see you in the next episode. See you later.